Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today's guest has made herself into a YouTube sensation. As a digital marketing expert, she dominates the AuthorTube community with her hilarious writing channel. She is not only a best-selling author with her thrilling adventures with heaping doses of bloodshed and romance, the Savior's Champion and the Savior's Sister, she also teaches writers how to build a successful author platform. She dissects writing with the 10 most, 10 best, 10 worst, 10 whatever examples of whatever she is discussing in her weekly show. Fantasy is her favorite genre with dark fantasy leading the pack of all the different aspects of fantasy. I've listened to several of her videos and she's a hoot and a half. Welcome, Jenna. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a huge honor to be here. Yeah, it's um, when I was first told about uh, Claude from my office is, was in was in touch with you, and he said you've got to talk to Jenna Moresi. She's like she's hilarious, and she's something different than I've ever had before. And so I started listening to your your YouTube videos. I went absolutely. I would love to be able to get you on. And after waiting the four years it took to get you freed up to be able to have an hour to talk with me, we're finally talking. So that's great. I know. I'm. I'm super excited to be here and yeah my you know scheduling it's it's always a nightmare it's always crazy so but I'm glad it finally happened oh I'm absolutely glad it happened so I guess the first thing is with you what came first writing or YouTubing uh, writing definitely came first. I've wanted to be an author literally since I was six years old in the first grade uh, we would write books. I say that with quotation marks yeah. uh, because it was basically, you know, just construction paper. We would bind them together. The very first book I wrote was called The Funeral. So that concerned uh, my parents and my teacher. But basically from that moment on, I was hooked. I was like, I'm going to be a writer. That's that's it. And it's something that I have been studying and pursuing since I was a child. YouTube honestly just fell into my lap kind of accidentally. And that didn't happen until my mid-20s. So definitely writing came first. And YouTube, I sort of used as an avenue to propel my writing career. I get it. So now... You said you like the fantasy, so in several of your videos I watch, you talk, you dissect fantasy and uh, various tropes that work and don't work. So fantasy obviously will devolve into all different aspects of, of the fantastical. You've kind of like moved in the direction of the uh, fantastical thrilling adventure with your bloodshed and romance. So how did it go from a generic fantasy to that or has it always been that type of fantasy for you? It kind of has always been that way. There was a time where, um, especially with the romance element, you know, there's sometimes there can be stigmas against certain genres. And there was a while where I was like, well, you know, uh, everyone looks down on romance and I tried to steer away from that. And then I realized, you know, after I released some of my work, the romantic elements of my stories were the parts that everyone was enjoying the most. And, um, and I realized, you know, how misguided my opinions were and that romance is probably the biggest fiction category out there and has a huge, you know, audience. Um, but 
circling back to the beginning, uh, the reason that I got into fantasy and action and romance, I like to say, I like to look at it as half bloodshed, half romance in a fantastical magical package. <laughs> uh, the, the reason I got into that is because again, when I was a child, uh, my dad would, you know, put on movies for my sister and I, and while my friends were watching Disney princess movies, my dad was putting on classic fantasy movies like the time machine. Machine, uh, the Mysterious Island, Jason and the Argonauts, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and my favorite, The Clash of the Titans, the original, not the horrible remake. Um, and those movies just got me so invested in the idea of, you know, heroes, heroines, you know, mystical creatures, monsters, and they always have some kind of love story between the hero and the heroine. I just, I fell in love with that kind of storytelling, and it's something that I've been writing ever since. I get it. So is that pretty much because you've got, I saw when I looked up, you've got the three books there because you've also got, there was the uh, third book that I saw that you, that you wrote. I just, it's the one about the, uh, uh, the person that was, well, she's a robot or. <laughs> yeah, she is. She's a chimera, uh, like a um, evolved human being. Got it. So. <laughs> Close enough. That's, that was, yeah, that's way different there but that's also seems to be like in a more realistic like world right now with that little fantastical twist to it right my my preferences are fantasy and sci-fi so i started off with sci-fi um and now i've been sort of veering more into fantasy it's just because it's been more so on my mind lately um and and yeah but i prefer i both of them are my favorite genres i get it i get it okay so now on youtubing so how did that evolve? As you said, it just kind of like fell into your, your lap. How did, how did your lap open up to receive the YouTube? <laughs> it's, a, it's a very strange story. Uh, basically, I you know, went to college. I studied business with a specialization in finance. And I went to work as a stockbroker because, you know, my whole life people were telling me writing is never going to pay the bills. You got to get a quote unquote real job. I was working as a stockbroker for several years and it got to a point where I came home and was like, I can't do this forever. Is, is this really what my life is going to be like? I just really hated my job. Yeah. So I started writing my debut novel on the side. And the way I looked at it was, this is just going to be, you know, um, my goal is to make it a lucrative side gig, you know, just something fun that I do on the side and hopefully make some money from. And while I was doing that, I was studying the business and everything. And I learned that I had to create an author platform. So I started off blogging and I would offer uh, free critiques to people to help kind of get my name out there. And everyone I worked with said, you know, your advice is really good and you're really funny. You should start a YouTube channel. And my first thought was absolutely not. There is no way that I'm putting my face on the internet. There's, you know, I'm an, I'm, I seem outgoing, but I'm an introvert. I, I had no intention of, of going that route. So I stuck to blogging for a while. And you then- You handled that quite well, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, stuck to, I stuck to blogging for a while. And uh, unfortunately, uh, my then boyfriend, now fiance, suffered a major accident and he uh, broke his spine and had a major spinal cord injury. I quit my job so that I could become his full-time caregiver. And when you go through something like that and you see, you know, your best friend and your partner, 
you know, almost lose their life. It kind of changes your perspective on things. And so I, I realized that I had been playing it safe and, you know, my time on this planet is finite, you know, it's, it's not going to last forever. And so once he was well enough that I could continue building my author platform, I just said, you know what, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to start a YouTube channel just to say that I tried, just give it a shot. And my goal was a hundred subscribers. If I hit a hundred, I was going to feel victorious and like I, you know, made it big and, um, 260,000 subscribers later, (laughs) now it's, now it's, you know, a huge part of my career. Um, the lucrative side gig turned into my full-time job. And now between YouTube and my books, I'm making almost quadruple what I made as a working that real job in finance, you know, so it it definitely ended up, it ended up working out a lot. So absolutely. How many videos have you made? I don't know. I honestly couldn't tell you. I know it's uh, over 300, but I, I know it's a lot more than that. But I think what's live is over 300 because every six months or so I do what I call the purge where I go through old content that isn't performing as well. And I, you know, I get rid of it, you know, get rid of the the boring stuff and keep the more entertaining stuff live. It also helps me to figure out what people like and what people don't like so that I can, you know, gear my content towards my audience, you know, in a more practical manner. Yeah. Cause I asked that because, um, Having a YouTube channel isn't like, a, oh, yeah, I think I'm going to have a YouTube channel and just let, let's go for it. I'm going to have I'm going to build up, you know, 100,000 followers. It's everybody I've talked to who's got it like what you've got there. You've spent years building that up with a lot of content, a lot of work, mm-hmm. a lot of study, what works, what doesn't work. It's not one of those things like I'm going to go do my weekly post. Exactly. It it takes a lot of time. People don't realize that it took me six months to see extreme growth in my channel. And by that, I mean, for the first six months, I had like 100 subscribers, you know, just a very piddly amount. And then once I hit the six month mark, by that point, I had made enough videos that, well, to be specific, what had happened was I started my channel trying to be very professional, trying to not alienate my audience. And once I got to the six month mark, I had like 100, 200 subscribers. I was like, you know what? Not that many people are here. No one's watching. I'm just going to be me. And I'm going to be goofy and silly because that's how I am. Mm -hmm. And I started making videos that were much more myself. I'll put it that way. And that's when it just completely took off. And I remember I was at my sister's bachelorette party and my channel was taking off while I was away. And so everyone's celebrating my sister and I'm just looking at my phone like, oh my gosh, all these new subscribers. And so once I hit that point, you know, it, it really took off from there. But it was six months of making weekly videos before that happened. And a lot of people quit way before then. Yeah. <clears throat> so with your either channel now, has it always been what you're I meaning from the from the get go, were you always trying to create videos to help writers, authors, how did how to do storytelling? Is that was that your objective from the get go? Yeah, uh part of it well the main reason was because the people I had been doing critiques critiques for they're like your advice is really straightforward it's really sound you know you cut you cut the to the chase 
and you're funny and you deliver it in a way that, you know, is, you know, palatable and makes us laugh. You should make a, a YouTube channel for that. So they asked for it and I did it <laughs> and uh, it worked out. So th that's always been my goal. And it's something that the way I look at it is uh, I consider my life motto, be the person you needed when you were younger, um, which works in a sense because I've wanted to be a writer since I was a child. Um, it, it was hard for me to find writing advice for a really long time. And when I would find writing advice, it felt very flowery and rambly and almost like the person writing it was taking themselves a little too seriously. And I'm a straightforward person. I just, I want, get to the point, get to the meat, get to the tips that I need. Um, and so I, I just tried to be the person that I felt like I needed earlier in my, you know, writing journey. No, it's, it's amazing. And when it, your style is, is from what I can see right now is unique to you, <laughs> but it's, it's, um, it was great. It was really enjoyable. And it just, you're giving these, these pointers of to do's and not to do's, but you can kind of like, okay, that, that makes sense what you're saying, but the way you're saying it is very, very obviously you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love how you're dancing around it. <laughs> yeah. So to, to elaborate, <laughs> um, I, I've, it's funny because I'm very much a square, you know, in, in many facets of my life. I'm an introvert. I don't really party. I don't go out much, but I've always had a potty mouth. So that's my one little daring vice. And it's something that I've been made fun of my whole life. And uh, that's just naturally how I am. And I think it's in part because I'm a very straightforward person. And sometimes the F-bombs and things like that, they, they add the extra punch of getting to the point. And so once I started being genuine to myself, that's when my channel picked up. Of course, there are always going to be people who don't like it, especially as a woman on the internet being, you know, kind of straightforward and vulgar. There are, you know, there are lots of people who don't like it, but my channel's not for them. So it's fine. They, they don't have to like it. There are plenty of PG channels out there that they can tune yeah. into instead. But this is, see, this is the part that I'm very excited to talk with you about this is that some people go for trying to hit the, you know, I'm going to do something that reaches the majority of the, of the audience out there. And there is a fact that if you go after, like, sometimes authors will go after politics and they'll take a political slant. We are automatically going to alienate 50% of the people straight away as soon as you take a political stance. Mm -hmm. I actually haven't observed that you do that. You just, you, you stick with the, uh, with, I'll with your angle. Right. I'll talk about social issues as they apply to writing, like diversity and fiction and things like that. But I'm not, I don't really talk about, you know, any if it's outside of writing, I'm not really touching on it, you know? Yeah, which is what I do also with Writers of the Future. It's I've got I mean, we've got thousands of entries every quarter now. It's, it's gotten huge. We're over 175 countries. So I don't even have a country perspective. You know, it's not like this is United States or this is Canada. It's like 175 countries that people entering the contest. So by very by default, it has to be only about writing, aspiring writers, making it as a writer, how to get published, or if you're an artist, how to how to get your illustration into the you know into the mainstream, uh, if that's what you're going for, or how to how to do it, how to make it. You know, when do you switch off from being another day job versus um, this mm -hmm. now is your major source of income? So, exactly. with yourself on, on what you're doing. What is your recommendation on this? Because like I said, with Rise of the Future, we're like, we're open to just, the theme is, let's help the aspiring writer. And so you've, and so I don't have, I keep it PG, you know, right. on what I do there. Because I have, 
This year we had our youngest winner was 16 years old when she won, and our oldest winner this year was 67. So that's quite a, wow. quite a gap <laughs> between ages. So baby boomer to, um, I think she's now the new generation A. It's, she's gone, it's full circle now back to, she's gen A. So that's, that's quite a spectrum and everything in between too, all the age groups in between. So how have you worked that or what do you see as the value or not of targeting a specific audience or trying to go for as much as you can with your, with your fantasy? It completely depends on what your goal for your channel is. If your goal is to be a YouTuber, you know, just to make it on YouTube, then, you know, generalizing can be helpful. Um, but if your goal is to become an author and to sell books, you need to target specifically your target audience. So looking at my books, I write dark fantasy romance uh, for an adult audience. So I'm not going to make my books or my, my channel children friendly because children really shouldn't be reading my books. They're full of decapitation and all that crazy stuff. Uh, and sometimes people will write me saying, can you make some versions of your videos that are kid friendly? And it, it doesn't really benefit me because they're, they're not going to be my target audience for my novels. Additionally, I don't mind, you know, be having a bit of a potty mouth in my videos because my books have cursing in it. And, you know, sometimes I'll make, you know, inappropriate jokes. My books have inappropriate jokes in them. So the way I see it is if people are, you know, very put off by that, that's great because they wouldn't be a really good, you know, readership for my novels anyway. Right. So I, I, and I'm not saying, you know, if you cuss in your books, be sure to cuss on YouTube. It, it doesn't work that way. I, I'm being authentic to my personality. Uh, but you really have to think about who your target audience is and make your channel very specific to them. So usually when I talk about genre, 75% of the time, it's either fantasy or romance. That is what I focus on. Um, and, and that's because, you know, my target audience are fantasy and, and romance readers, also sci-fi as well. So it, it really does help to uh, be niche in that sense, because you're going to get the right people attracted to your channel. And some people might say, well, you know, I'd rather just, you know, throw out a big net and get whatever I can get. But I've seen it backfire. You know, I've known people who made their, you know, platforms very PG, very family friendly. And then the book they released was smut. And they, you know, they got torn to shreds. Everyone was like, what is this? You know, whereas if they had been a little bit more odd, um, honest on their mm -hmm. platform, it, it probably wouldn't have happened that way. So, you know, you really got to understand what you're creating and who that content is for when you're making your YouTube channel and hone in on that segment. And if it alienates people, it should be alienating the people who really wouldn't be a good fit for your book. That makes sense. Now, you've got YouTube. Do you do any of the social channels? Do you do Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, anything else? I have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, of those three, the one I'm most active on is Instagram. But for me, it's more so, I mean, I obviously promote and whatnot on there. I do little clips of my YouTube um, and I do, you know, pictures of my books. But for me, it's a little bit more about giving people a look into me and what I'm like and who I am. For me, it, it seems like an extension where people can get to know me a little bit better. Um, Facebook and Twitter, 
there's definitely an appeal to them, but it's like, man, between being a caregiver and filming videos and social media and and writing books, it's like, I just don't have, I don't have time for that. So I focus my energy mostly on YouTube and Instagram. Okay. That makes sense. Now you have, one of the things you do is you, you involved with courses that you help people to, to build a platform. So a person that obviously doesn't have to create a YouTube channel in order to build a platform as an author. Mm-hmm. At least I hope not. That's the pun- that that's not the punchline because that's a heck of a lot of time besides writing a good book right. that you're mm-hmm. gonna have to do to that. So, what's your basic advice on this? Without, you know, I realize you've got a whole course that you that you've offered on this stuff here, but in terms of, you know, the the essence of of what advice would be on this stuff, and then obviously then we'll we'll get direct people to where they should go to get more specifics on what you're talking about? Well, when you're creating an author platform, obviously I used YouTube to launch myself, Uh, but you don't have to use YouTube. I know lots of authors who have podcasts, who have blogs, who have just general uh, writing sprints, activities, um, people who run forums and groups. there's, there's TikTok. That's another one. Instagram. You know, there's the whole bookstagram community. The idea is to create a platform where you are providing value to other people. A lot of people think I'm going to create a platform and just talk about myself and my books. And yeah, at a certain point you can do that. But when you're just getting started, no one knows who you are. No one's heard of you. And so why are they going to tune in to your channel, your blog, whatever, just for you to say, hi, my name is Jenna. My favorite color is red. I have a dog. No one cares because they don't know who you are. You have to start by providing value or content that people actually care about. And once you've been doing that for a while, you can start to you know, let people in on who you are as a person. Because once you've built a, a bit of an audience, they're going to start to wonder about the person behind the content. And that's when you can talk about yourself, you can talk about your books. It's just the biggest mistake I see when people create their author platform, whether it's a blog, a YouTube channel, a podcast, or even Instagram, the very first post is get to know me, but you just showed up, you know, you just showed up to the party. No one knows who you are. No one asked. So you got to come in with something else something that people might be interested in, whether it's if you're on Bookstagram, that might be beautiful pictures of books. You know, people are really into that. If it's TikTok, it's probably something funny about, you know, the writing community or, you know, books or anything else. If it's on YouTube, maybe it's a video essay about your favorite book. There's so many options for you to choose from. Start there with the meaningful content and then ease into you as a person and your work. Okay. Now with... On doing social media, I mean, I know what it's like in terms of biting off more than you can chew, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's a, a definite thing there. So, on giving a um, giving it the what's the right amount of of um, time you should give it to be able to build up? Because somebody will say, especially like maybe not just especially in the United States, but in the United States, it's that instant gratification. If you don't have the instant gratification, forget it. This, this obviously isn't for me. Let me try something else. And so they don't give it that the fair shake. I mean, I would say, and this is not just because this is what happened with me on YouTube, but I would say at the very least six months, and a lot of people are not willing to wait that long. Um, I would say at the six month mark, assess the situation whether that's this is not working for me at all, or 
I don't enjoy this because people can tell if if you don't care. People can tell if you're not into it Um, or if maybe you still like it and you want to give it a chance, but you need to rework your strategy. I would say every six months, this is what I do with my platform at least, every six months I look at my my content, what what's lacking, where I can improve, or what I should quit entirely. And be honest with yourself about stuff that you're just not really passionate about. I used to be a blogger. I hated blogging. It just wasn't for me. I love to write, but I want to write about romance and fantasy. I don't want to write about, you know, I don't know, like daily life stuff. Uh, so I had to be honest and say, this isn't really for me. I, I prefer YouTube much more. So, you know, be honest with yourself. If just because it worked for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And be honest about whether or not you're a good fit for the avenue that you've chosen. Um, but like I said, I, I would assess every six months. And a lot of people, I've seen people make four videos and then quit after that. They're like, well, I, I only have 50 subscribers. It's What were you expecting? <laughs> it's four videos, you know, <laughs> give it a chance. So, yeah. Yeah. And six months sounds like a long time, but sorry, <laughs> that's how no, it is. It makes sense. And on, and on YouTube, you've got to have a lot of content if it's if because YouTube, the channel itself, needs to see that before it's going to be able to invest back in you. Exactly, exactly. And you have to reach certain benchmarks for YouTube to even give you the perks that make being on YouTube valid. I don't know what the benchmark benchmarks are currently. Uh, because I started eight years ago, but there, you know there was a certain point where once you have this number of videos, we can allow you to upload custom thumbnails. And custom thumbnails are a game changer for a channel. And once yeah. you reach this number of uh, views or this many minutes watched, you can monetize your videos, which obviously gives you you know an extra stream of income. But you have to be doing it for a while to get there. I know people who have been on YouTube for years and they're still not monetized because they haven't reached that view count. So yeah, I think it, it's it, a, it you have a to while. have a thousand followers, and I think it's five hundred or a thousand hours, or maybe four thousand. It's, it's a large number of hours yeah. uh, of being watched, mm-hmm. and um, then you have to the the two the two uh, factor verification and then no negative no complaints on your channel where you violate some their their rules those mm-hmm. are the four things you need to have now for youtube because i had a galaxy press page which was grandfathered in to the, where i could then promote links i could put links on on a on a video that sends somebody off of the youtube page but on writers of the future i didn't have that done so even i'm about halfway there right now on the number of hours watched to be able to put a link that can send somebody to go buy something, you know, Mm -hmm. to be able to monetize. Yeah, it definitely takes a while. And if you look at, you know, my older videos compared to now, as you grow, you know, you're, you're going to start to make more money, you'll get more views. And then that's when you can start upgrading, not only because YouTube is allowing you these upgrades like custom thumbnails, but you can start upgrading your equipment, you can start upgrading your sound quality, your lighting, all, all that good stuff, your editing. Um, and it takes a really long time. Like I said, I've been on YouTube for, I think, eight years now, you know, it, it, you just you got to be persistent and hardworking and dedicated and yeah, you know it it's it's not everyone has that yeah but like you said it's eight years so you can say yeah i've got two hundred sixty-five thousand followers now mm-hmm. or subscribers but someone if they're going to do the first five i've only you know you spent six months to even break a hundred and mm-hmm. however many videos you made to actually make that happen i just want to make sure people understand it's it's a real problem like some even 
writers themselves. When I tried writing, I just couldn't get it. Well, how mm-hmm. much did you write? I wrote a story, you know, and they. <laughs> yeah. I, I see a lot of that because I get a lot of messages and comments and stuff. And a, a lot of people are looking for a, a formula or in, in all aspects of writing in creating an author platform and writing a book, everyone wants someone else to do it for them or some mm-hmm. kind of formula or some kind of quick guide, uh, uh, something in a video that I'm uh, releasing this month. Uh, one of the things I talked about is people will ask me, how do I write a villain? How do I write a likable character? What traits do I have to give them to make them likable? And it, it's like, they want a formula for this is what a likable character needs to have. They need to be uh, generous, charming, and funny, you know? And it, it's not that way. I have to tell them, right. what do you find likable? This is something you have to sit and think, you know? Yeah. It, unfortunately, it, it, it's that way with storytelling. It's that way with building an, an author platform, you need to think, you need to spend, invest the time and you need to practice. I, I mean, my first videos were horrible compared to what I'm doing now, but I took sure. the time to practice. It's a learning learn. curve. You need that learning exactly. curve. Yeah, exactly. So on, you made the, the comment about you know, the use of profanity in your videos as well as in, mm-hmm. in your stories. It's interesting. There was, um, so Ellen Hubbard wrote mostly stuff that was, you know, that was PG, but he wrote one series called Mission Earth, um, which would have, um, yours may have been tame compared to. Um, <laughs> and he worked out a handling where every time there was some profane word, it went bleep. And so, and that was put in with a, um, the uh, computer that was translating from Voltarian from the country, from the planet that was coming from to, to English, it was programmed that it can't, it can't publish or write profanity. So every time profanity came up, it would go to bleep. And so everywhere they're going, sometimes some profanity would come up, it would just go bleep. And so it was, um, it was very obvious that there was profanity, but you never saw it. So it makes it appropriate so that somebody who was in middle school, which we had a lot of kids you know, read it when it first came out in the 80s, were able to do that. But it was um, it was a tool that he worked out. You know, I've never heard it being used anywhere else before. But that was just the computer refused to to print profanity to translate profanity, so it just made it like that in, in the story. I'm not <laughs> sure. Are so you very funny. familiar at all with Owen Hubbard as an author? Uh, I'm not so much. I mean, I, I'm familiar, you know, slightly with the one that became a movie. <laughs> but outside of that, not not so much. Yeah. So Battlefield Earth is interesting. You mentioned that. Did you read the book or watch the movie? I, I watched the movie, but I haven't, haven't read the book. It, it's interesting. I did an interview recently or a, a few months ago with Roger Christian, who was the director of Battlefield mm-hmm. Earth. And he was also, um, he won his Oscar for Star Wars. And um, he talked about how he, how he worked out some different things in the movie. And it's interesting. You know, you've got some people will get into and, and just make disparaging comments because that's what they've heard or read or, or seen from before. But several of the things that he used in that movie, like the the uh, the strings coming out of the nose, that's that's the new Doom movie. It's almost exactly what they used there in that one. And wow. um, the uh, the spaceships, he said that the spaceships that he used in there were used in the next Star Wars movie. You know, oh, it was wow. copied on that stuff. It was interesting talking to him about that. People that hadn't read the book just saw it as a different type of movie, but the whole slanted and the Dutch angles um, mm-hmm. 
you see that a lot right now in some of the, the more recent TV series, Mandalorian, Dutch Angles. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. so it's just interesting how he said the main problem he had was that he was so far ahead of the curve that people just, it was too variant from, from the normal of what was out there. It was just, it was just interesting. It's, I've, when I've done a lot of interviews and I handle all the social pages for Battlefield Earth, and it's funny, it's about, it's getting closer, closer to 50-50 and people liking it, not liking it, the, the movie. Some people are saying, I actually really like the movie a lot, you know, and mm-hmm. the main problem you have with, with that movie, along with um, most any other movie that's made off of a book, is the movie is, with very few exceptions, is never the, the book. It's always mm-hmm. some type of Hollywood. They make a little thing on it. You know, like in Battlefield, they've got these jets. Well, there's no jets in the book. There were, mm-hmm. there were never any Harrier jets in there, you know, using the gas and stuff like that. It's just that was a Hollywood thing to be able to the, – the budget didn't allow for that super-duper high-end special effects. So they had to use mm-hmm. these other things here, and they couldn't afford going to Scotland to get the um, – where Johnny goes and the, the hero goes to, uh, to get the people that work with him. So instead – they used some of the, the caves in nearby where they're recording in, in, in Canada, and that's where they got the, the cavemen to help on and stuff. So he kind of like – he explained what was happening and why it was done like that. It was very interesting getting his perspective as the, directive, as the director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so anyways, that, that book there when it came out, it was um, – it hit the New York Times for you know, multiple months, and it was um, – the success of that is what sparked the writers of the future. And that's what oh, – wow. um, created this contest back in 83 and now we're nearly four decades old and um i mean i came on board when it was a young contest so uh (laughs) well that's fantastic yeah you know we love to see it yeah so it's it's been very very successful and stuff and the whole purpose that that he created it for was to provide a means for the aspiring writer artist to have their work seen and acknowledged and now it's grown so much. I mean, the first year there was like 600 entries into the, into the competition. And now there's like thousands of entries every quarter. It's, it's just huge. And it's, um, there's so many people that got their start from the, from this competition. Today's, you know, major, um, mm-hmm. writers and artists too. Even some of the, some of the big creatives with, uh, Netflix and Disney are our judges, but they got their start from, from writers of the future and illustrators of the future. Which is which has been really fun, you know, and that's that's something I like to be able to, you know, continue to build on that and provide that because now we can only publish twelve winners every year, mm-hmm. so obviously if you have thousands entering every quarter, you've got a, discre- a disparity there. So we started this thing now with um, honorable mentions that people will get certificates, and uh, editors take. If someone says I was an honorable mention in Rise of the Future, their work comes out of the slush piles. It's just gotten so you know so popular and stuff. And that's part of why I was really excited to be able to talk with you is the audience that you reach said this is the first year we had a 16-year-old winner. You know, this mm-hmm. we've never we've rarely had somebody younger 20 years old as a writer winner because they just need to be able to learn the language. Right. You know, you right. just have to write enough to be able to, to master the language to be able to do that. We have a lot of young illustrators, but not young writers. So um, I'm really hoping that with your audience that they, they see there's another outlet that they can actually submit to because the contest mm-hmm. is free to enter and the judging is done blind. So all the judges see is a number and the work. So they have no oh, idea if you're that. male, female, your age, nationality, ethnic, nothing. It's just straight, are you a good writer or, or aren't you a good writer? And um, 
So that's why I'm, I'm really hoping to be able to reach more of the uh, millennial and, and Gen Z because we're getting more of that type of, of talent that should be able to enter this contest and know about it. Right. And, and I just love any kind of platform that where writers are helping to uplift other writers, because sometimes, you know, people can be competitive and it, it's silly to me because, you know, people can read more than one book at a time. So sure. uplifting other writers makes more sense, not only from an ethical standpoint, but from, you know, a business standpoint, you know, it's kind of like, let's help each other, you know? So I, I just love seeing any kind of organization that is, you know, helping to other people get their shot because it is a hard industry to break into. Yeah. Yeah. So now you broke in, you were like pretty much the bulldozer that just said, here I am. You're going to keep on seeing my face until you accept it. And that's <laughs> my story and I'm sticking to it. So you went not the traditional route. You went mm -hmm. more the self-publishing route. Yeah. I like most writers. I had originally thought I was going to go traditional and I had a friend who said, maybe think twice about it, you know, do some research. And I, and I believed a lot of the stigma that I had heard. Um, and then basically, long story short, I did research for one to two years. I basically researched the entire time I was writing my debut novel. And by the end of it, I decided that I wanted to go indie. I think both routes are completely legitimate. I think there are pros and cons of either. But after all the research I did, I realized indie is definitely the best path for me. Um, so I didn't query. I didn't, you know, end up in slush piles or anything like that. I went straight to indie. And I'm still indie. It did end up being the right decision for me. It's funny because I have been contacted by traditional publishing houses mm -hmm. about switching over to them. And I have politely dec declined. It's something I would definitely, like, I'm, I'm not against it. You know, there's a lot of people in either camp who are very anti-indie or very anti-traditional. Uh, I, I don't feel that way. I feel, for me, it's a business and you make the business decision that works best for you yeah. and your strengths and weaknesses. That's how I see it. I wouldn't be against going traditional, but they would have to offer me a contract that works better than what I'm currently doing for myself. And that hasn't happened. And yeah. right now I'm in a really good spot with my writing and with the reach and um, with my sales. So I, you know, like I said, it's something I'd be open to, but I'm not, you know, I'm not gunning for it. I'm really happy where I'm at. Yeah, I'm just, I'm getting ready to do an interview coming up with A.G. Riddle. He's the one that uh, also indie as well. And he now has um, more work now. He's been offering because he's been so well. He wrote the, the Atlantis Gene, the Atlantis Plague. Mm -hmm. That was a very popular science fiction series that, that he's done. So he's very much went indie and his, mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. A.G. Riddle is, and Ann is his wife's name, and his name is Jerry. So it's A.G. Riddle. So it's, it's a team that they're doing it. And he's not dissimilar to you. He was in corporate business, and he just decided mm -hmm. to make the move because life is too short. And so I'm, I'm, I have the idea maybe it's going to be very similar to yours on on your story as well <laughs> when I when I talk to him. But it's, um, I mean, I've had some of the writers of future judges like um, maybe you know Ann McCaffrey. Remember her, the, mm -hmm. the author who wrote all the Dragons, Dragon series of, of Pern? Right. So like her, her son, Todd McCaffrey, is a judge. He does both indie and professional. All of his, all of his uh, Dragon Riders of Pern books are through a, a regular publishing house, but all, everything else he does is indie. And 
we've got a few of the judges that are just like, Indy is the way to go. That's just the way it is. And others, you know, like that have themselves a, a good solid, like Orson, Orson Scott Card, Tim Powers, they do really well with their publishing houses and they just, they take care of them. So they just write and they don't have to do this other stuff. So it's, I try to give both sides of, of the, uh, of the publishing coin, but on, right. um, going indie route. So you've like, what's been for you the hardest part of going indie and then the most rewarding part of having gone indie? Well, I would say initially the hardest part is when I was just getting started. You know, I didn't it, I didn't know any other writers. I wasn't really familiar with the community. So I basically had to learn everything on my own. I had to do the research by myself. It's part of the reason why I'm inspired to do my channel is because I don't want people to be alone and make the same mistakes that I made. So I had to, I hit every single bump in the road. You know, I had to deal uh -huh. with every single hurdle. And so now I'm trying to make it easier for other people. At this point in the gig, um, I feel like I've, you know, gone through enough that, you know, I've got, I've brushed off the cobwebs. It's like, okay, I've got my groove. I, I know how to do it. So at this point, I wouldn't really say that's much of an issue, but definitely getting used to it and figuring it out. That was, the, you know, the, the, making all the mistakes, having all the, I mean, there were, there would be nights where I'm panicking because my book's formatting is all messed up and, you know, all, all, all the, those bumps in the road. The most rewarding part, it's, twofold. Uh, the first one I would say is the control. I'm a bit of a control freak. I, and a lot of, a lot of writers who go indie, they say they like the creative control and, and I don't get me wrong. I love that. I like that. I can write the stories and tell the stories I want to tell. Um, one thing that a lot of my, uh, traditionally published friends have told me is that, uh, they will query. And for a long time, you know, they're trying to write adult books like me. Um, and uh, agents would tell them, we will, you know, accept this book if you make it young adult, because that was the trend for a long time. Um, and, you know, I, I like that I don't have to worry about that. I can write what I want to write. I don't want to write a young adult book. You know, I want to write books for people my age and with content for people my age. Uh, so I, I like that I have that creative control. But more than that, I like that I have the business control. I like that I'm in charge of when I want to put my book on sale. I like that I can hold Black Friday sales for my books. And I don't have to, you know, hound a publisher like, hey, can you do this for me? You know, like I, I like that there is no middleman or someone essentially controlling my financial and career destiny. Um, you know, when you go traditionally published, they get to decide if you get an audio book, they get to decide what kind of promotion and marketing they put in you. And obviously for a book of their writers, you're not really going to get a ton of promotion and marketing that's going to be reserved for people like Stephen King. And that makes complete business sense. You know, as a business minded person, I get it. Uh, but I want the marketing. <laughs> you yeah. know, I want the promo. I want to make the decisions that I know will be the best for my books and my career. I want to be able to decide when the book, you know, stops being printed. Whereas if you go traditional, a lot of books after their two year mark, they stop getting printed and you don't really get a say in that. Um, I want to make the decisions. Mm -hmm. So that, that for me is, is a big part of why I think indie is very much superior. The other option is the money aspect that, you know, everyone talks about it. The royalty percentages just don't compare. You know, we're looking at 70% royalties for eBooks compared to 25% in traditional publishing. And a lot of people will fire back with, well, but you're not going to sell as many books in, in indie. And that 
can be true if you are not putting in the business effort, if you're not putting in the marketing and the promotion. And a lot of people don't realize that's also true for traditional publishing. We see the famous people and we think everyone gets those numbers. A lot of traditionally published books only sell 250 books in their the book's lifetime, you know? Yeah. So it, it, no matter which route you go, it's going to be hard and you're going to have to market yourself. But I like the fact that, yeah, I'm marketing myself and I'm doing all this business work, but I'm getting all the profits, you know, I'm getting all the reward. I'm, it's not going off to someone else. And so I, I'm making a lot more money than I would have made if I had gone traditional, probably. <laughs> yeah. And then now, do you print? Are you only ebook or do you also have uh, print books? I have print books. I have ebook, uh, paperback, hardback, and audiobook. So do you uh, go so through an, any publisher or is it all through, Ken, through the Kindle app? I, my books are available wide. I, so you can buy them on Barnes & Noble. You can buy them at Kobo, all that good stuff, Book Depository. I use IngramSpark for my uh, paperback and hardback books. I use Draft2Digital for all the non-Amazon eBooks, and then I use Amazon KDP for the Amazon eBooks. And then, of course, there's platforms like ACX for, aud for audiobooks so that it could be go to Audible and iBooks and all that good stuff. So how did you do your audiobooks? Um, I did it through ACX. They actually make it pretty easy. You basically list all the details about your audiobook and what kind of you know narrator you want to hire. And you can either decide to do a royalty split, which is where you and the narrator each make 50%, or you can pay them up front. Uh, the nice thing about the royalty split is obviously you don't have to spend any money up front. The negative thing is if you are not a popular writer, not a lot of people are going to want to bite because they're thinking, I'm not going to make any money off this. So right. why am I going to do the work? Uh, then paying them up front. The nice thing about that is you're going to get a lot more bites because it's guaranteed money. The bad thing is you, you have to pay them, you know, so, you know, it's just pros and cons to each side. Um, but yeah, I just used ACX. Uh, I worked with two narrators. I, one of my books is, uh, has a male character, male lead, so I needed a male narrator. Another book has a female lead, so I needed a female one. And I loved working with them. They were amazing. And I'm hoping to hire them for pretty much everything I write in the future. They were just wonderful to work with. And it, it makes the process really, really easy because they're doing, they're doing the work. You know, I'm just sitting back and, and uh, making sure they pronounce the names right and all that good stuff. For sure. And for anybody listening to this thing too, if, for more information, I did an interview with uh, Michelle Cobb, who's the president of the Audio Publishers Association uh, a few months ago. So she goes a lot more into ACX as well as other forms you can use, as well as Robin Witten, who's the publisher of Audiophile Magazine, talking about the history of audiobooks and, and different avenues you can go to get your uh, audiobooks uh, created if you're an indie author. Mm -hmm. So um, now on the type of audience that you reach. So we talked this a little bit before we started the, the interview. We've got the, we got Gen A now, which is the, you know, the youngins, which definitely is not mm -hmm. what you, your audience, but then you've got no. Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, on up to the, pretty much the boomers. So how do you work the audience that you're going after, both on your social as well as on your writing? And how do you make those things work so that you can get the maximum recompense, but also don't violate your own integrity, what you're trying to do yourself as an author, your voice. Well, again, this, it kind of comes back to the sort of books that I write. Uh, the, the 
main audience that seems to like my writing, I would say, is college age, maybe late high school, like 17, 18 years old, uh, college age to around 40 years old. Um, I would say it's 60% women, 40% men. So a little bit more on the female leaning. Um, no matter what, whenever I create content, I want it to be authentic and genuine to me. So even if people request topics that I know I don't have a really good understanding of, or I, I it doesn't matter how popular that topic request is. If I don't feel confident and qualified to talk about it, or I don't feel comfortable to talk about it, I'm not going to. So ultimately, being able to go to bed at night and be comfortable with who I am and what I'm putting out, that's always going to be number one. Um, and being myself and being authentic to who I am. Because I feel like that's it to, to do it another way would be an insult to my audience. You know, I want them to be able to trust me, uh, right. which is another mistake that, that a lot of creators make. Um, but when thinking about my audience, I feel like I already, I don't, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm, since I'm in the age group for the people I write to, I feel like we already kind of have a similar mindset, you know, like we are, mm -hmm. we already kind of get each other. So it's, it's not something I, I don't think about when I'm making a video, well, this a appeal to 18 year olds. I don't, I don't really think about that because I think, well, if I was 18, I'd probably like this. And if, you know, maybe some 18 year olds will and some won't. So I guess it helps because I'm in the group. I'm in, right. I mean, I'm obviously not 18, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 34. So I'm in the 18 to 40, 45 year old range. And I, I just, I'm myself and I, you know, I just, I, I, focus on that, staying true to myself and, and trying to produce the kind of content that I would have wanted. I get it. So now let's just take it and you may or may not have an answer for this one here. So now let's say I'm an author, I'm in the fifties, you know, so I'm mm -hmm. definitely, you know, maybe I'm Gen X now or heaven forbid I'm all the way up to a baby boomer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> speaking for myself and I'm going to be able to reach that audience. So any particular tips on for someone who's not in that age group? Because like I said, for yourself, I'm, I'm just, it's me. I'm just being myself. But mm -hmm. for someone who's a Gen X, wouldn't necessarily be themselves to do something that would, that would appeal then to a Gen Z or millennial. Any tips it, on how to be able to become or uh, how to better address that persona? It's funny because I actually have an acquaintance who is starting their YouTube channel and they're a baby boomer and their channel is really appealing. And I think a lot of it is one authenticity. People are tired of, especially in like the millennial and Gen Z category, people are kind of tired of, of sort of the fake stuffy, you know, persona. Uh, being yourself goes a long way, whether that's someone like me who's kind of curt and straightforward and a bit of a potty mouth or being really cutesy and flowery. And it, as long as, as you are being real, people appreciate that. They can tell when you're being phony and a fake. And I say that as someone who I've seen channels, uh, try to emulate me. <laughs> so yeah. someone will send me their video and be like, no one's watching it. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And they're saying the F word every other sentence. They're like me <laughs> times 10 and I say, well, is this really how you talk? And they're like, no, but it works for you. I'm like, well, I'm not doing that 
to as a shtick I'm doing that because that's how I talk and you're 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 not getting the likes because you come across fake be yourself so I really think authenticity is a, is a huge tool but a lot of it comes down to recording quality and editing um, you you need to get rid of especially on YouTube you need to get rid of the ums the uh, likes the long pauses uh, if people are on YouTube they they want to get to the good stuff they want it quick. Uh, so you so you got to dive in really, really fast. And um, what I've noticed uh, is more common, uh, maybe among boomers, is a, a little bit of a slower path to get there. Uh, millennials and Gen Z, they, they want it now. I mean, look at TikTok. It's like 15-second video clips. You know, <laughs> they, they want it fast. So getting to the point, cutting out all the BS and ums and likes and pauses. And um, if we're going to go the technical route, audio quality matters the most. You can get by with not so great video footage or not a, a crappy camera, uh, bad lighting. You can manage with that, but if your audio is harsh and grating, people are not going to want to stick around because it's going to hurt their ears. So those are my top three pieces of advice. And I know saying be authentic sounds so cliche, but it really it, it makes a huge difference. It makes sense because people get into trying to emulate somebody else and they think, okay, good. So I'm going to be like Stephen King, you know, well, Stephen mm -hmm. King is Stephen King. You got to be yourself. And mm -hmm. while it's true that sometimes when you initial write, you're going to, you're going to try to be like who you like, but at some point you need to develop your own voice. That's why, um, I mean, Owen Hubbard and several of the other older judges, throw away your first million words. I mean, he used to write 100,000 words a month and publish, you know, 100,000 words a month. And um, he was very popular. He, when he wrote Battlefield Earth, which is 435,000 words, that was like in eight months he wrote that in. In the Mission wow. Earth, which was uh, also, that was 1.2 million words, and that was under 10 months he wrote that in. And all, that was broken into 10 books, and that was they were all 10 New York Times bestsellers. So, yeah, I mean, he definitely had a lot of the... Uh, the ability to to write, but I think the Mission Earth will be really good for for this audience, um, for the for the millennial and uh, and Gen Z, because it is like what you're saying there. It's just like mm -hmm. lays things bare. Let's you know this is what's happening. There's no to an old, older audience. It's like oh they shouldn't say that. That's not good because it's just very much in your face about the mm -hmm. the quirks of of life on planet Earth, the the criminality and just the stuff that people it needs to change, you know? So, mm -hmm. but that, that's interesting that you gave those, those three points there on, um, on speeding it up. Okay. What are you gonna say? Cut to the chase. Come on. What is it? What is it? Tell me so I can get, and even mm -hmm. though you have a lot to say, say it faster. Yeah. And it's not even, you don't have to speak fast, but at least cut out the, yeah. the parts that are dragging and, and, you know, don't repeat yourself all the time. You know, that's where the editing comes into play. Make it very crisp and as you know, short as you can possibly make it while still keeping the content you need. Yeah, because how long are your, your YouTube videos or what's your they're average usually around, they're, they're usually around 15 minutes, somewhere yeah. anywhere between 11 and 16 minutes. Yeah, so mine are nice and short hour. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, it's different 
for podcasting, you know, with podcasting, people are, you know, they're driving in their car, they're doing the dishes They're, you know, it's, it's a completely different environment and landscape. And so, I mean, I have a ton of friends who are millennials and they have podcasts and they're all an hour long. So yeah, definitely it's different. But with YouTube, it's someone who's sitting in front of their computer staring at this video and unless you've got insane graphics and it's an amazing movie like Netflix or something, no one wants to sit and watch an hour long lecture about, you know, with talking I heads. don't know, yeah, world building or something like that. It's, it's got to be more compelling. Yeah. So now on, like, what do you have that's coming down the pike for you on your books? Are you like, you've got two in this, in this one series I talked about when I first announced you on the, um, the Savior's Champion and Savior's Sister. Are you going to have more in that series? Yes. Um, so The Savior's Champion and The, and the Savior's uh, Sister are the first two books in the Savior series. It's my dark fantasy um, action-adventure romance series. Uh-huh. Uh, just throwing it out there, The Savior's Champion was voted one of the best books of all time by a book depository. No big deal. That's, not that big. <laughs> That's definitely worth saying. I mean, you better like thump your chest on that one there. Right. I, I always joke with my fiance, that's going to be on my tombstone. That's like the highlight of my life. Uh, but I, I'm working on the third book in the series, The Savior's Army, which I am hoping to have out in 2022. Um, I am also working on another project, but I haven't said anything about it publicly yet. So it's a secret. So we'll just okay. leave that as a teaser for people. There's something secret and extra fun and exciting coming out soon. Oh, that's great. Now, with respect to um, your YouTube channel, what is that channel so people know to, to check out what we've been talking about here so they can get a taste of the real Jenna? Absolutely. Uh, so you can find me at YouTube.com. The unfiltered Jenna, excuse me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you find you can find me at youtube.com slash Jenna Moresi, or you can just go to YouTube and type in writing with Jenna Moresi. Uh, yeah, but just, you know, if, if you're a parent, have the kids in the other room because I, I make lots of uh, special jokes. So, but hey, it's straightforward writing advice. I, you know, I cut the BS. I, I give you the truth. And someone recently described it as uh authentically chipper cynicism. So if you like that, <laughs> check it out. <laughs> That's great. I'm so happy I had a chance to uh, chat here on this here because it's, it's something that um, this, this audience here, I know a lot of people want to be able to, to reach this audience and on social media, you know, you've got your own pace that you do and you're not really certain where to take it. And so I think this has been very helpful, at least for me, I know what I'm going to be doing now to, I wanted to do the interview just so I could then write, make my own notes of, of what to do to deal with millennial and uh, Gen Z <laughs> audience marketing and to increase my platform to that audience. Well, happy to help. <laughs> thank you very much there. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We have also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Jenna. Thank you. It's been a huge honor to be here. I had a blast. That's great. That's great.